Hey, I guess, have you ever heard of uh, furry elephants? Why won't you do it? Because reasons. It got us beat on syphilis, but everything else. <laughs> Luther Vandross, <laughs> one shining moment, it was just shots of woolen units. Welcome to the Presequential Podcast, episode three, Blaine, episode three. Are you ready? Describe. Oh man, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm your host, Ryan. And I'm Blaine. This is the Presequential Podcast, where we go from one to 45 in under 90. We're talking about a two-termer tonight. Tommy J. Tommy Jefferson, number three. Let's so we read Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. It was written by John Meacham in 2012, and it rings in at 505 pages. Which what's, our, uh, what's our tally up to now? 1,969. It's a lot of yeah. pages. What are we uh, drinking tonight? We're drinking a 2000. This is the finest 2019 Bordeaux I could find. Uh, it is a Rue de Pearl Grand Vin de Bordeaux. Jefferson loved him some French wine. Yes. And so in his honor, we are sipping on some of France's finest over the past year. He was like notoriously a stickler about his wine. He was. Yeah. He was really like it had to be the exact right kind for the mood, for the type of mm-hmm. meal. He was in the room where it happened. He'd be the guy. Oh, yeah. Drink every time Blaine makes a Hamilton quote, by the way. He'd be the guy over in the corner and be like, mm, do you smell that mulberry? Is, really that, is, that, is that chocolate? And he would get mad. Like if he'd show up and he'd be like, this isn't going to work. I need Sally. <laughs> Go get the good stuff. Wow, you're already bringing in Sally Hemings. <laughs> We're not even two minutes into this episode, Blaine, and you're bringing up Sal. So he was born on April 13th. <laughs> <laughs> Great segue. Yes. Tommy J's. Can we just call him Tommy J a lot? Tommy. I'd rather not. You okay. can. All right. I'm feeling it. Thomas Jefferson uh, had ancestors who immigrated to Virginia from England in 1612, and they included it. A planter, sheriff, captain of the militia, sea captain, a merchant, and the member of the House of Burgesses. So already this guy was predestined to be a leader. And his father, Peter, yes, was... A surveyor mm-hmm. who drew the boundary line between Virginia and North Carolina, which I thought was interesting. If you want to talk about like a Virginian, like he yes. literally said like, this is Virginia. Yeah, right now we're calling this Virginia. <laughs> he was born on April 13th, 1743 at a very young age to Peter Jefferson and Jane Randolph, the third of 10 children. I don't know what it is with 18th century people, but they breed. They didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> this is even before Netflix came in the mail. It was just Anne Chill at that point. Yeah. yeah. His mother was from Goochland County. That can't be the real name of the county. In the book. Wow. <laughs> I love it. His earliest memory was being handed up to a slave on horseback and carried on a pillow for a very long journey. He was an infant white master, John Meacham writes, being cared for by someone whose freedom was not his own. We're going to get into Thomas Jefferson's view on slavery, his practice of owning slaves, uh, his legacy, all the things. We're just doing a little bit of the childhood and the upbringing right now. Fell in love at a very early age with the outdoors, reading, music, he played the violin, philosophy, and the classics. Just like any young kid would, just fall in love with the classics. Greek, Latin. There's rumors that he haunts the White House by playing the violin. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. I looked at all the ghosts of the White House up yesterday. That's cool. Maybe one day in season like two or three when we get to go to the White House and do this. (laughs) We'll play the violin hoping that he plays back. The eldest son in an upper crust Virginian family of his time grew up expecting to lead and to be followed. So already at a very young age, Thomas came with a lot of confidence of controlling the destinies of others. 
Uh, at age 14, he inherited half of his, the family's plantation upon his father Peter's death, including 5,000 acres and its slaves. He later, at age 21, would take full control over the land, but already at 14, he was expected to control the destinies of, of other people that were enslaved. At 16, he enrolled at William and Mary College in Williamsburg, Virginia, where he studied 15 hours a day and regularly could be found with older male mentors discussing law, philosophy, and self-government. Because that was important. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing at 16. That was a long time ago. I think people went to college earlier than... I mean, we we know that. And college was a little different, too, back in the day than it was now. Yeah, because it was more of like, you go, you get talked to, you yeah. studied, and then you found your mentors. And I mean, the majority of people that we'll you know, talk about over the first few presidents yes. realized the law was the way to go, yeah. but there was no law school. So you'd find your mentor, you would study law under them, you would basically be their like, apprentice, mm -hmm. and then take the test, yeah. pass the bar. In 1768, Jefferson began construction on Monticello, which he designed because, of course, he did. He was an architect at heart. He loved tearing things down, putting things up, building things, writing things. He basically wanted to build yeah. all the time. All the time. In his mid-20s to early 30s, from 1769 to 75, he represented his county as a delegate in the House of Burgesses, during which he pushed for reforms to slavery as a legislator, which were largely negatively received. And as a lawyer, he took 68 cases for the Court of Virginia and seven cases for slaves who were seeking their freedom. So it's a really interesting relationship with Thomas Jefferson and the concept, the issue, the institution, the, the system of slavery over his entire life. This is probably the only time he was publicly anti-slavery. Yeah. When he was president, he kept quiet yeah. about he, it. He mostly just didn't say anything about it. Right. Kind of pushed it down the line a little bit. In 1772, at age 29, he married his 23-year-old third cousin, Martha Wales Skelton. Martha, otherwise known as Patty, was also an avid lover of music, reading, and the finer things in life. She bore six children, five girls and one boy, over their 10-year marriage. Sadly, only two of the girls, Martha and Mary, survived to adulthood. There were only like six names. Yeah. So they maxed out on kids because they were like, that's all the names. That's all that we can and think we of. Got Martha, Mary, Thomas, Lucy, George, and that's it. That's about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Through their marriage and Martha's inheritance and land upon her father's death, Thomas became the second largest slaveholder in Abelmarle County in Virginia. He had 52 slaves before marriage, and then when he got married, he had 187 at the age of 29. So I guess he married up. Kind of. Yes, in a way. Martha died on September 6, 1782, at the age of 33. Thomas was 39. Pretty early for a woman of her time, shortly after giving birth to her last child, Lucy. And on her deathbed, she made Thomas swear that he would never marry again, which he honored the rest of his life. He did not marry. Didn't marry. Did a lot of other things. <laughs> the, uh, also, lots of death. A lot of death. Like, four kids, one wife friends like it was a pretty constant thing with him yeah and he also was like warmonger so he was a fan i guess even the 18th century was like whoa that's a lot of death man. yeah that's a like lot of most death. of your family is dead now. yeah he was pretty inconsolable to say the least and almost suicidal in the months leading up to patty's death and certainly after her death are you ready to segue into thomas's political life 
Yeah, let's talk about the revolution. I love that. Let's do it. 1776, big year if you're Thomas Jefferson. If you're anyone. If you're really anyone. Yeah. But especially him. Uh, He was chosen over Adams to write the document, which was presented to Congress on June 28, 1776, and debated and edited over and over and over, starting on July 1st, much to Jefferson's internal turmoil. He hated it. So we talked about this the last episode, but I actually have the transcripts. Go for it. So there was an argument between John Adams the first and Thomas Jefferson over who should write the Declaration of Independence. And I know, like I said, I think we gave a Cliff Notes version of this, but this was the conversation of their argument, which I think is fascinating. Let's hear it. So Jefferson suggested Adams write it. And Adams said, I will not. You should do it, Jefferson said. Oh, no. Why will you not? You ought to do it. I will not. (laughs) Why? Reasons enough. That's right there. Let's put a pin there. Why won't you do it? Because reasons. Because. Jefferson says, what can be your reasons? His response is, reasons first, you're a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second, I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. Wow. You are very much otherwise. (laughs) Reason third, you can write ten times better than I can. (laughs) Well, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. So, in a nutshell, you write it because Virginia is important. Yes. Everyone hates me. (laughs) Also, I can't write good. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. I got it. Give me the feather. Let's do it. (laughs) He stayed in just some random bricklayer's house named Jacob Graff while he wrote it. He just wrote it. And I feel like Jacob Graff shouldn't be lost to history. Mm. Like he literally housed the man that wrote the Declaration of Independence, and I don't feel like very many people know his name. To Jacob Graff. Yes. Cheers. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake, man. Appreciate it. All right. So to Jake. The first suggestion of what our country's motto should be. Oh, yes. You were reading this before the show. Yeah. Uh, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And I feel we have a different country if that's our motto. Very much so. That... (laughs) <laughs> Do you want to dive in a little bit to Jefferson's religious spiritual life? We yeah. Can, we can just dip our toe into it. Yeah, barely. So he was raised in an Episcopalian family. Essentially, he so was... So he only ate fish. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's pescatarian. Oh. That's, that's a different denomination. Easy to get him confused. <laughs> Essentially, he's a theist, so he he believes in a supreme benevolent being, not so much an orthodox Christian per se. He denies the divinity of Jesus. He actually made his own version of the New Testament. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. He basically made the New Testament and got rid of everything that was fantastical, I believe is the his word. He got rid of everything fantastical. So basically, he took the New Testament and took all the miracles out, mm-hmm. and he was like, here you go. Here you go. Yeah. This makes more sense to me, so it must be the truth. Yeah, he called himself... So he started Facebook. (laughs) He was like, this makes sense to me, it's the truth now. Drop the the, just Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he wrote someone later in life claiming to be of a sect all of his own. It, It was a really interesting journey for for Thomas as far as faith went. After the declaration was written uh, in September of 1776, he was in the Virginia State Legislature and he wrote the bill for establishing religious freedom, which forbade state enforcement of religious doctrine, which failed to pass, but later was revived by James Madison. And I think that's an important thing to bring up is that it's possible to not be religious or not be of a certain religion and still give the sanctity of somebody who wants to practice religion. Yes. And I think that that's one of the things that throughout history 
that gets kind of jumbled. Mm -hmm. That they're like, well, everything was principled on X religion, whatever you might think it is. And in reality, it was like, no, we all have our own different beliefs and we think you should all be able to have them mm -hmm. too. It goes back to Washington, right? Like Washington took it even a step further to be like, well, as the leader, I'm not going to follow one. I'll come to all your services to show that they're all okay. That's been a little distorted yeah. over the years. All right, let's take the toe out of that puddle. Yep. And let's jump in. Thomas becomes governor of Virginia, June of 1779 through June of 1781. He served for two years. He transferred the Virginia capital from Williamsburg to Richmond, only to soon see it burned to the ground by jerkface Benedict Arnold. Somewhat of a fiasco with his honor followed with how he actually served breakfast the day that he had to retreat. A lot of it was very much looked down upon about how he handled his retreat from his plantation. Well, there was a the guy escape. that rode all night. To let him know what was happening? Yes, and I can't remember yeah, his name, but... That sucks. To him. He rode all night, like, had permanent scars for the rest of his life on his face from, like, the branches. Yes. Him. Rode, like, 65 miles or something crazy like that. Let him know Thomas Jefferson went out, told his family, and told everybody, hey, you should go. And then was like, I'm going to go up to my room and write some letters. Mm -hmm. Stayed up there until he could see people, and he was like, oh, this is a problem. Now it's probably time to go. I should go. Mm -hmm. And got out just in time. But then they came back to haunt him because people used that against him later correct in his political life and they're like well you're a coward because you know a lot of people would look at an army and be like i'm by myself i should stay should probably just hide in the closet yeah, yeah. <laughs> his pride hated the fact that he was not re-elected soon after this he also lost two daughters at very early ages they did not survive let's say just infancy overall these two years as governor of virginia were not a great time for tommy J personally or politically. He becomes a member of Congress in 1783 and 84. Congress accepted the Virginia cessation of territory northwest of the Ohio River, and Thomas was ready to name some states, baby. Mm -hmm. He had like all the... Do you want to hear the names that he had ready for these states that were not at all? Can you imagine living in the state of Sylvania? Or maybe... Chironesis, Asinisipia, Metropotamia, Illinois. That's pretty close. That's close. Michigania. That's close too. Washington. That's Saratoga. Close. That could be a state soon. Polypotamia. Pelisipia. I mean, I like to, what was Mesopotamia? Metropotamia. Metropotamia. Yeah, that's pretty nice. It's, yeah, it's like Mesopotamia, but they dress nicer. <laughs> Very nice. On July 4th, 1784, eight years to the day that his declaration was ratified, Thomas finished his congressional business and headed to France the next morning to join Ben Franklin and John Adams as Minister of Negotiating Treaties with European Powers. Had zero arguments over windows. Never had to share a bed with him. Didn't have to. Also, when he got to France, he decided that he wanted to start playing chess yes. with the French folk mm -hmm. and immediately got destroyed like two or three games in a row and never played another game of like, chess. like, you know what? I'm, I'm good. Yeah. He realized pretty quick, oh, they've been doing this for mm -hmm. a while. Yeah. Maybe I'm in over, over my skis here. <laughs> and, and he just never played another game of chess in France again. Just swore it off. Yeah. You think he came back to the States and he's like, yo, I'm really good at chess. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I do after I play Russ a few times. After I play my kids, I should say, <laughs> I go and think I can beat Russ and then... Just not going to happen. It doesn't mean. Yeah. It's much easier to be an eight-year-old. As much as he left France, he grew to fall more in love with the USA while he was living abroad. He wrote to, uh, let's call him his protege, one of his protégés, Monroe. He wrote to Monroe back home, quote, My God, how little do my countrymen know what precious blessings they are in possession of and which no other people on earth enjoy, end quote. 
Which at the time is kind of a weird take, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have very much here. And most people, especially of his ilk, would go to France to like buy furniture and see the culture and things like that. And then to go there to a place that arguably at the time had much more culture, more arts, and sure. things like that to be like, they don't know how, how good we have it. Mm-hmm. Like, really? They've got us beat on civilists, but everything else... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should see this yellow fever thing we've got going. In June 1787, Jefferson sent for his youngest surviving child, his daughter Polly, age nine, and an accompanying enslaved woman, 16-year-old Sally Hemings, to come over to Paris. Do you want to dip our toe in the Sally Hemings pool now? Does she come up at some point? I mean, she's she's somewhat of an important figure in Jefferson's legacy. Hmm. You ever heard of her? Never heard of her. Oh, really? Wow. That is mind-boggling, seeing how we read <laughs> how many pages? 505 pages. Of... She comes up once or twice. She does, yes. I'll take that as a no. We'll keep we'll keep trucking. Well, I mean, we just get out of the way. There were rumors for years that he yes. had children from one of his slaves. Yes. It was proven, basically, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Some people still don't want to admit that it's true. I think in the early 90s, there was some DNA testing. That's where it came. Yeah, that's where basically they proved it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things like, do I don't know. know. It's a rough like situation. Yeah. Obviously, we're just going to chalk that one into like, that was bad. Throw that in the hopper of the bad. And like like we talked about earlier, we're not doing this to try to get into was this obviously it's bad in today's terms because slaves existed correct right like and they don't now because we see how terrible the thing it was and it was even worse then and obviously it did come back with the Hemings papers yes when he was calendar uh, 1802 i think yeah who he met a great demise yes um if you don't know the story of i think james calendar was his name in the last episode yeah listen yeah it was awful and so i just don't want to spend a whole lot of time that's fine that's fine while he was in france he befriended lafayette a lancelot of the revolutionary set everybody drink you got it this time beloved figure throughout history every single time he pops up in a book yeah basically this dude loved this lafayette guy he really did Every, well no like washington loved him adams loved yeah him. jefferson loved him like, yes everybody that met him was like yeah this dude is the bee's knees and he loved america yeah he did he which loved is it. like he's the only french person that's ever loved america yeah that's right <laughs> Thomas, while he was in Paris, befriending Lafayette, uh, saw the French Revolution up close. He strongly supported the ideals of the French Revolution, though he opposed its more violent elements, which were really violent, by the way. Did he, though? Because he was quoted as saying that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. And I'd like to point out that for a guy that never fought in a war Mm. and ran... When the war came to his backyard. Yes. Literally really, his backyard. Yeah. He really liked to talk about how it's cool. We should do it more often. Hmm. I was not impressed by that part of it. Okay. All right. Like, that's just a weird take, right? Yeah. Like, he never fought in our own revolution. Not to say he wasn't a giant figure, the making of our country, but like, if you're not going to do it, maybe don't go proposing that other people do it. Or being like, here, here's a knife, like do something about yeah, it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was really violent. I think it was either in this book or the Adams biography, Mabakula, in the episode two that we just did. How violent it was. I didn't really know much, uh, like a ton, about the French Revolution. But when they're talking about cutting people's hearts out and hanging old people up by the lampposts, just and pulling them out, 
cutting their heads off. Yeah, drowning them by the thousands. I'm like, man, this is ugly. And there was no real leadership or real direction in it. They would just, whatever the, whoever they felt like torturing and killing that day, they were like, let's do it. Yeah. And And it ate its own tail too. I mean, Robespierre, all those guys. The people that started it ended up being assassinated by their predecessors Mm -hmm. over essentially the same issues. And then it resulted in a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great job, guys. Way to go. Enter Napoleon. Yeah. Made for a great Broadway musical, though. And passed the San Dimas High School history exam. <laughs> wow. And a good Coldplay album, too. <laughs> okay, we're going to go into uh, the, the era of time where he was the Secretary of State under Washington. So, so from 1789 through 93, during which he's just squabbled nonstop with this guy named Alexander Hamilton. They did not get along. They did so, not. Background. Hamilton's a Federalist. Yep. Jefferson is now a Republican at this point. Well, no, they're anti-Federalists. Anti-Federalists. The Republicans didn't come out till Madison, but they're at odds. And so they're constantly in Papa George's ear being like, he sucks. And they're like, no, he sucks. Mm-hmm. And he's you like, guys figure it out. I'm going to bed. Yeah, it's basically like me with the kids. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, I don't know. Go in the other room, figure it out. Yeah. They mostly squabbled about the national debt, mm-hmm. whether the federal government should absorb the state's debt or whether the state should pay for it. Uh, and the national capital as well, where that should be geographically. Around this time, real political partisanship began. Jefferson founded the National Gazette with James Madison in 1791 to counter federalist policies from Hamilton. Shortly after, uh, he and James Madison took somewhat of a brocation to Vermont, and they just hung out a little bit. They just said, you know what, let's go ride around the Vermont countryside. Let's look at the leaves. Let's take a nice little horseback trip and maybe do some other things. Yeah, well, and there's lots of speculation that they did that to be anti-Adams for Adams' presidency. But I want to take a step back really quick with the Hamilton thing. One of the things he did in the newspaper was question Hamilton's military acumen. So going back to what I just said, like for a guy that never did it, to say that his military acumen probably wasn't good just because he got yellow fever. So he got yellow fever. He had to go home. He had to like quarantine and recuperate. He was like, well, this thing's taking him down. Like maybe he's lying about Hmm. all those military exploits he had. And it's like, really? Like you don't. Yeah. Because somebody has a cold, they couldn't have been good in a war. That's a stretch. So you would dock him, you would throw that into the Sally Hemings hopper. This is not a good mark on on Jefferson's legacy. Right. Well, it's back to what I was saying. Yeah. About him talking about military stuff when he doesn't know anything about it. Cool. Yeah. And sorry. we should say that, Blaine, you are a patriot and an army man. You're a soldier. Yeah. Thank you for your service. <laughs> we don't have to do that every time. I want to. <laughs> I know I don't have to. Yeah. But thank you. Yeah. Uh, Washington negotiated the Jay Treaty in 1784 with Great Britain, which really upset Jefferson because he thought it subverted the republicanism, the, the nascent republicanism, which he loved and he his heart beat for that. Uh, he voluntarily left Washington's cabinet and returned to Monticello in 1793 and rallied fellow Republicans to his cause of opposing federalism. In 1796... He lost to John Adams, 71 to 68 in the Electoral College in the election of 1796. Not until the ratification of the 12th Amendment in 1804, there was no distinction between the two offices of president and vice president within the Electoral College. So basically, we've talked about this before. The second place guy became the VP. And he took a completely different approach to vice president than Adams did. So Adams saw it as, here's what the Constitution says I am. I need to be here. I need to be taking notes. I need to be voting on things. And Jefferson was like, I'm here. 
<laughs> I'll sit in, I guess. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to be here. And obviously, and we'll talk here in a little bit about how he changed that because he was the one that yeah. brought about the 12th. But yeah, he was, was very uh, hands-off as yes. a vice president, if you will. Yes. And part of that was because anything the president wanted to do, he was basically against it. Mm-hmm. Because Adams wasn't, I mean, I guess you could call him a federalist. He tried to see himself as not yeah. that, but he was basically, he saw himself as, I am the protector of the Constitution, so I'm really just here that if the Congress does something that's unconstitutional, I'll block it. Yeah. And Jefferson, he was like, whatever, dude. Hands on Sally. Hands off the <laughs> vice presidency. You just set it up for that. Yeah. Adams actually cast 29 tie-breaking votes as president of the Senate, more than any other VP in history. Thomas only cast three. Uh, 31. He, I'm sorry? He oh, that's right. 31. Sorry. In opposition... I the, somehow turned right to that page. I don't know. <laughs> it was so quick. I'll never do that. Gosh, that's amazing. He strongly opposed the Alien and Sedition Acts that uh, Adams' administration passed. Right. Let's talk about those for a second. So Go ahead. Alien and Sedition Acts were anti-immigration slash you can't say anything bad about the president anymore. In the press or even out loud. Yeah. You can't like, say that. And it was basically to be against libel, but he was worried that was going to be taken to now you're not allowed to be uh, questioned. Correct. Right. So that was the concern about it was the act was put into place to prevent people from outright lying. The anti-federalists were saying, hey, we should be allowed to question what you're doing. Yes. And they were like, yeah, question what you're, we're doing all you want. But like, you can't just say that all these outright fabrications. Yeah. And people went to jail because of it and got fined because of it. Yes. And then Jefferson came in as president and was like, you guys He, he pardoned free. a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even under- Calendar was one. Correct. Yeah. I think under the, might've been this, the Alien Act, I think. I can't remember which one it was because there were a handful of them in the, in the whole bill. The naturalization process extended from, I think, maybe five years to 14, I believe. So they were like, hey, you can't become a citizen unless you've been here for over a decade. And that was a big thing, too, that changed things well, up yeah, a lot. You also have to own land and yeah. be white and be a man. Yes. There were some caveats. Yes, yes. In response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, Jefferson and Madison secretly wrote the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions, arguing that the acts were unconstitutional and that states had the right and duty to declare unconstitutional those acts that the Constitution didn't authorize. You could say, one could say, that this planted the seeds of disunion that then led to the Civil War, as far as states' rights concept. He faced scrutiny after the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s because of his support of the states' rights. He actually, his his popularity also waned during the Civil War itself. Yeah, which he clearly cared about it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Can we unpack that for a second? Let's go. I would like to think that the seeds were planted. Well, okay, maybe I would like to think is a bad way of putting it. Going through this journey, yes, I was a little bit surprised starting from BW before okay. Washington yep. that I felt like the seeds were planted then. I have felt from reading, I was, I've been surprised because I guess I went into this blind. Like I went into this with this idea, I want to learn these things. Yeah, I know a little bit more about history than I learned in school, but like I still have a relatively baseline level of history. Kind of always assumed that it was like five, six years before the Civil War, people started getting mad about stuff. Yeah. And states' rights became an issue. <clears throat> Slavery. What I've learned is, I mean, Massachusetts 
banned slavery before we were ever a country. To Massachusetts. Pennsylvania banned slavery before we were ever a country. To PA. This was an argument mm-hmm. that happened while they were writing the Declaration of Independence. That's Correct. where the three-fifths rule came from. They wanted to make sure that the Southern plantation owners had more representation because they had all of these slaves. Yes. They didn't want to give the slaves a one-for-one, one, so they said they're each three-fifths, so they would count towards how many representatives they would give. Yes. And as we found, as we're reading through these things, every president ended up facing it at some point. Jefferson mm-hmm. faced it at some point of the South. Was ready to secede, or a couple of states in the South were ready to secede, or even if I can jump in, the New England, some of the New England states threatened were ready to secede. Yeah, because they were like, and we'll talk a little bit about it with Madison with the Missouri Compromise. Mm-hmm. People were ready to secede over that because they never wanted to lose the balance of power of how many slave states there were versus how many free states there were because they wanted to each have their equal say to make sure they kept their own thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I don't know if the seed started here. You could, like you said, one could say this is where it started. I would say started the farther it became a country. It could it could have run alongside those other seeds that had been planted years before. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it all, it was a snowball. Yeah. Jefferson stayed at home at Monticello during Washington's funeral in 1799. He, he thought it would be a bad look if he went from a political standpoint. So he stayed home in Monticello while Washington was buried at Mount Vernon. The election of 1800, he's up against the incumbent John Adams in the fourth presidential election to date. The other contenders at the time were Charles Pinckney of South Carolina and Jefferson's vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr of New York, who Jefferson tied with at 73 votes apiece, surprising how many votes Adams got in that election. I think he got like 63, 65. So for Adams getting a lot of flack of just being a single-term president, president as the number two guy. He still got quite a bit. He still got a, yeah. quite a lot of... With a lot of cards stacked against him. Correct. Uh, it took the House 36 ballots to break the tie, which Alexander Hamilton was very instrumental in getting Federalists to side with Jefferson over Burr, who I think he saw... Jefferson as a man of principle and maybe Burr as a man of selfish ambition. Yeah, because, I mean, they fought their whole adult lives. They couldn't be further apart on the political spectrum, but he at least saw, I mean, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, dude, but at least it is an ethos. Yeah. Uh, he basically said, I mean, at least he stands up for what he believes in. He yeah. saw Aaron Burr for what he was, which was basically a power grabbing power whore. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we can't have somebody like that running our country because he's changed sides like three times just because he saw the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you got to give him credit for that to be able to go to the other side of the aisle and say, we should go with this guy because he at least has the nation's best interests in mind, in his opinion, for whatever that is. It, yes. it might be different from ours, but at least he believes in it. Hey, you're listening to the Presequential Podcast. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into Thomas Jefferson's presidency starting in 1801 and lasting through 1809. We'll be right back. Have you ever opened your pantry and wondered, what am I going to do with these 32 half-used Yankee candles in here? Listen, home decorating can be hard, especially when you've got a thousand other things going on. You need the Jealous Neighbor. My sister Heather started the Jealous Neighbor to help homeowners use the furniture and decor they already have in their home, add to it on a budget, and discover the home they've always wanted. Whether you need help just sprucing up your home's entryway or you need your entire first floor redecorated, go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor to schedule your consultation with 
with my sister, Heather. She will guide you through an hour consultation in person or virtually, help you assess the furniture and decor you already have in your home, and give you a plan to take your home from bow to wow. Get an hour of redecorating with Heather free when you mention that you heard about The Jealous Neighbor on the Presequential Podcast. Go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor today. And we're back. Welcome back to the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90. We're so glad you're with us. Today we're talking about Thomas Jefferson. We're discussing his life, his legacy, and little-known facts. And we've just got to Thomas Jefferson as president. You could say that Thomas Jefferson's coming home. He is. He's POTUS. Wow. Got it. There's a Hamilton reference. Drink every time Blaine makes a Hamilton reference. So... He beats Aaron Burr, an all-around terrible human being, who I'm not a huge fan of, and I think we've discussed I'm a big fan of the play Hamilton. It's more of a musical, but that's semantics. My biggest gripe is that they humanize him Hmm. and make him out to be like maybe an okay character. Yeah. Because the more I learn about him, the more I'm like, come on, Lynn, that guy sucked. Just make him a straight-up villain the whole (laughs) time. He deserved that. Yes. Don't um, give him a ballad. Yeah, I don't care about his Theodosia mm. song. He doesn't deserve that. At this point, I feel like Jefferson, with having two vice presidents because his first vice president killed a guy, mm. I kind of want to get Russ's input on this. Russ, can you tell us about Thomas Jefferson's vice president? Yes, Aaron Burr was Jefferson's vice president. They kind of started off bit of a rocky start. Jefferson really didn't pay any attention to what Burr had to say. The minute he went into the vice presidency, there was nominations that he provided to Jefferson that he completely ignored. And then, you know, he killed someone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys were aware of that. Yeah. So unlike Jefferson and Adams, where they just kind of tolerated each other but had been friends. It was like like a friendly rivalry. This was more pure animosity. Yeah. But yeah, let's get into the murder part. Because, <laughs> yeah, sure. Not um, just killing anyone, by the way. The Secretary of the Treasury, right. Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Which I feel like gets brushed under the rug that in our political system, the sitting vice president <laughs> killed... I don't think he was still Secretary of Treasury, but no. killed the former Secretary of Treasury. That's And it was normal. Yeah, and we'll find out, but he returned to the vice presidency after murdering Hamilton. Yeah. Wow. What'd you do this weekend? Yeah, exactly. Don't ask. I mean, the, <laughs> the whole reason it started was, well, among many other reasons, Hamilton called him despicable or referred to him as despicable in the public media. I feel like that's a an adjective that doesn't get used enough today. Did he have minions? <laughs> despicable. Or it's not as offensive nowadays, yeah. but apparently back then it would, you know, lead to a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Literally, um, them's fighting words. Them was fighting words. Mm. Thomas Aaron Burr. Aaron Gruber. Oh, man. What? Despicable. Yeah, this is... Gruber. Oh, my gosh. No. You know what? That's great. <laughs> We're going to keep that in. Some quick details on the... The murder on the duel, yeah. July eleventh, eighteen oh four. Can we call it the murder? <laughs> yes, I don't see how we couldn't call it the murder. Dueling was illegal in sure. New York. Dueling okay. was illegal in New Jersey. What they did to kind of skirt that 
they both took separate rowboats to this island in Weehawken, New Jersey, which was known for dueling. Mm -hmm. They arrived at separate times. The dueling guns were not shown to anybody. So there was none of the witnesses, the rowers or whoever could be implicated. Yeah. Plausible deniability. They couldn't be implicated for knowing what they were doing. So they drop them off. The duel starts in the wee hour of the morning by the I think there's the rules of dueling mm. there's mm. 10 dual commandments I've heard of that gosh drink <laughs> okay we have a rule on the presequential podcast that you don't have to but we choose to drink every time Blaine drops a Hamilton reference from the musical Hamilton and, yeah. and this is like really hard to not make more yeah yeah <laughs> So when it comes down to it and it was time to fire, Hamilton supposedly purposefully shot into the air. He actually shot the tree above Burr's head. As portrayed by Michael Sarah in one of the original drunk histories. Michael Sarah plays Alexander Hamilton in this and he's like, and he pointed it at his chest and he pointed it at his head and he pointed it everywhere around. <laughs> Continue, uh, Russ. Yeah, Burr, on the other hand, just shot Hamilton right in the abdomen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then he was transported back, and I think he died 30-some hours later. Wow. Yeah. Since it was illegal in New York and New Jersey, when Burr returned to New York, he thought he was going to be welcomed as like a hero because he defended his honor. On the other hand, he was actually charged with murder mm -hmm. in New York and New Jersey, but he had friends. Some future presidents. Yeah. That he stayed with. We'll talk about in That's upcoming right. episodes. Yeah. Actually, I think two future presidents that he either stayed with or stayed with places adjacent to them in his rush to Louisiana. But we'll get more into that. Do you have anything else on Aaron Burr? Well, he returned to the vice presidency. He returned to Washington after he was acquitted of the murders. And he was definitely not in anyone's good graces at that point. Hmm. And then. Weird. Weird. And then he had a, some real crazy after vice presidential life. Yeah, with the Louisiana treason. And yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it. I'm not a huge Aaron Burr fan. Uh, so second term, same vice president? No vice president? No. George DeWitt Clinton. It mm. was George Clinton, the P-Funk all-star. Parliament Funkadelic. Invented mm -hmm. funk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you guys, I mean, you knew he was old, but you didn't know how old. <laughs> there are stories in those dreads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was the first governor of New York. He had a lot of political influence in the previous presidential elections, as well as the future presidential election, because he could sway the New York electorates basically whatever way he wanted. Yeah, mm -hmm. so. When's Bootsy Collins come in? <laughs> At some point soon. <laughs> Is that, yeah. uh, that was great, as always. You're uh, welcome. And we look forward to your contributions bi-weekly. On behalf uh, of a grateful podcast. Thank you thank for your you. service. When Jefferson becomes president, he largely tries to dismantle or disassemble Hamilton's federalist financial system. He pardoned several of those imprisoned under the Alien Sedition Acts under Adams. He shrank the Navy, seeing it as unnecessary in peacetime. He signed the Military Peace Establishment Act on March 16, 1802, thus founding the United States Military Academy at West Point in New York. And he also helped the Young Library of Congress grow. There's very much a 30,000-foot view, but let's dive in a little bit to what Jefferson was dealing with when he was president. Blaine, unless you want to add something. No, I mean, go Black Knights. <laughs> yeah. He was big on the, the, the library, the Congressional Library, and it comes up later, I might as well bring it up now, Yep. 
when the White House was burned down, he ends up giving his own personal library to restart Correct. the Library of Congress. But yes, I mean, he was an avid reader. It was the War of 1812. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, he he had to deal with the Barbary Wars over in the Mediterranean, North Africa. Pirates. We ain't paying no more pirates. Yeah. That's right. Yes, I am the captain now. No, no, you're not. No, no, you're not. I'm not paying you anymore. We're not doing bits. No, we're not. You're not the <laughs> captain at all. He authorized the, the first U.S. foreign war. He bombarded Tripoli over in Libya. If you've heard the, uh, is it the Marine uh, anthem from the halls of Montezuma mm-hmm. to the shores of Tripoli? Uh, we will fight our country battles because the USS Philadelphia was captured. And Jefferson said, we're not going to do this anymore. And he basically had Tripoli submit to the U.S. on their soil. Uh, I will give him credit for that. Like, yeah, he, he authorized. He said, go kick their butts. Uh, there's lots of things that I'll give Jefferson credit for. Yeah. That's one. Uh, let's let's switch gears to uh, what was going on in Europe with Napoleon Bonaparte. Maybe you've heard of him. He needed some cash because he's trying to take over all of Europe. And he owns Louisiana, which is not just the state that we now know as Louisiana. It but was a huge, huge tract of land. land. Wow. You know what? I didn't know that in our friendship, we both shared a love for Monty Python. Oh, my gosh, dude. Cheers to yes. you. Yes. Cheers, Russ. Strange pawns distributing swords. No, <laughs> I didn't vote for you. <laughs> you don't get elected king. All right, let's take a sip of our, uh, what are we, uh, this is a. Uh, Front of the Pinot, which uh, we French were talking during that ad read about how I've never been able to tell the difference between reds. And I don't think I've ever had a Bordeaux before. <laughs> I've been to Louisiana, I'm uh, allowed to say that. I, I don't think you pronounce the X there. Uh, They're blank. I could definitely tell the difference between these Yeah. Two. It's nice. It's silky. It's smooth. Borgnani. Borgnani. We're drinking red wine. Borlami. <laughs> We're drinking some uh, French reds in honor of Thomas Jefferson. So Napoleon needs some cash badly. He's trying to fund his European conquest, and he's negotiating, or his people, talk to my people, are negotiating with James Monroe and Robert Livingston in France to negotiate 40,000 acres of this this territory known as Louisiana in the States for $10 million. Well, Napoleon shocks everyone where he says, I'll see your 40,000 acres for $10 million and I'll raise you 830,000 acres for, let's say, $15 million. (laughs) He doubles the size of the country, essentially, for us. Uh, Florida, however, remained under Spanish rule, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later. Yeah, because at the time, we assumed Florida was part of it. Yeah. It was basically Florida all the way to the border of what we know now as Texas, Mm -hmm. all the way up to, what, the southern border of Missouri. Yeah. So, like, we're talking about a lot of country. Yeah. And Tom goes, hey, great job, guys, doubling the size of the country, if not more. But what about Florida? That's going to come into future episodes with Madison and Monroe and even Andrew Jackson. Jackson, Because Jack, well, we won't get into it. Yeah. He also, during that time, uh, a couple other things real quick. He repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801. Did you just say Jiu-Jitsu? Judiciary Act of 1801. And I think that that's a relatively important thing to talk about because essentially he didn't believe that the Supreme Court should be a lifetime appointment. Okay. I'm, I'm going where you're leading on this, by the way. I don't, I don't correct really me remember if I'm wrong this. Go ahead. That. That's, I'm, I'm interpreting that correctly. Like he thought that the judiciary part Branch. of the triangle had too much power because congressmen could technically be, uh, you know, replaced. Mm-hmm. The president can be replaced, but the Supreme Court can't. And he thought they had too much power. Okay. So for a long, like until that was brought back, Supreme Court justices 
did not have a lifetime term. And he was one of the folks that thought that you should be able to replace a Supreme Court justice even as a lame duck president, hmm. therefore setting precedent for things that we've seen over the past or eight years. So as this comes up and, and both sides want to say, this is bad, this goes back to 1801. Hmm. So this is not a new argument, everyone. Sorry. Sorry about you. Yeah. Uh, this is something that we've literally been going back and forth on. Like John Adams was the first one because he appointed like four Supreme Court justices and like eight or nine district justices right before the end of his term. That's where we get the term midnight appointment. Yeah. Which like, really ticked Jefferson off. Right. And so he was like, this is horse hockey. I'm <laughs> Malarkey. Repeal, if you repeal it. The other thing, did we miss the Lewis and Clark piece? No, we're about to get into okay, it. Cool. Oh, man. What a segue, Blaine. Sorry. I was going off my notes huh. and... You don't have to apologize. Then I won't. Yeah. Lewis and Clark Expedition, 1803 to 1806. I'm going to give the side note first. If you have not read Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose... It's an amazing book. Shout out to my Uncle Dick, Richard Newton Jr. the third. No, Richard Newton the third. Can't be the junior and third. Why are you laughing? I call him Uncle Dick. That's what everybody calls him. Just, there's something shout out to my Uncle Dick. Shout out to my Uncle Dick. Okay. Uh can now's probably the perfect time to say that Jefferson owned a mockingbird named Dick. Mm-hmm. He loved Dick with all his heart. He took care of Dick. He napped occasionally with Dick. Would he have fluffed it? <laughs> It was a bird. He might have. <laughs> he might have fluffed it from time, from time to time. I think we just got our uh, explicit rating. There. Yeah. Anyway, he appoints Meriwether Lewis. First of all, what a great name. Meriwether. Uh-huh. Oh, man, that's great. That name needs to come back. And William Clark and their core of discovery to explore and map the new territory of Louisiana and find a path to the Pacific Ocean. This was a big deal for Thomas Jefferson. He's like, I want to get to the Pacific. First of all, show me everything that we got. Yep. Map it, explore it. So we can claim it. So we can claim it. People there and then kick but them out of there. Get us all the way over there. Yeah. For trade, for expansion. I do want to give a shout out to John Adams, though, because the Louisiana purchase would not have been able to happen without John Adams doing his thing. If you missed that, go to episode two. What's the name of of episode two the voice the voice john adams shout out to john adams single term guy but he did a lot of good stuff blaine i know you're itching to talk about one specific thing that you've always loved about thomas jefferson in his fascination with what woolly mammoths mm. unpack so, that so i'm not saying that the main reason that thomas jefferson moved forward with the louisiana purchase and the Lewis and Clark expedition was because of woolly mammoths. Okay. I'm also not not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Thomas Jefferson was given some bones from some large tigers at one point. Mm. And he was convinced that because that size of tiger didn't exist in the United States, that that must mean that woolly mammoths exist. Okay. And he was convinced that not only do they still exist, but they exist here in America. So one of his motivations behind expanding westward was finding these fantastical creatures that, spoiler alert, did not exist. Mm. They had, in fact, been extinct for millions of years. Mm -hmm. Eons. But he told Lewis and Clark, hey, just if you see him, <laughs> like, let me know. <laughs> So throughout the rest of his presidency, as they were making their trip westward, so most people have only heard of Lewis and Clark with 
Sacagawea and all, you know, that's, yes. that's the lens they see that through. Sure. He had told them when you see stuff that seems uncommon, send that stuff back to me. So yeah. they found these like massive sloths mm. and they would send the bones back and he would literally put them on the white house floor mm. and like recreate what they look like. And he was legit convinced this is going to end up with us finding woolly mammoths. And yes. like, that's why we're the greatest country in the world. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. That's great. And for whatever reason, like, that's the one piece of Thomas Jefferson I hold very near and dear to my heart. Like, he, he, I mean, the man was passionate about woolly mammoths. Mm. He believed they existed. He was confident that this expedition was going to bring them back. Like, cool, let's expand the country. Let's go all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But, like, we're finding these woolly mammoths. (laughs) Like... Boys, keep your eyes peeled. (laughs) The president wants us to find a mythical beast. That's I I like that man. For all of his faults, yeah, you you gotta find that endearing. That is somewhat childlike. Yeah, maybe he just pulled Mary Weather aside. He's like, "Hey, while you're out there, yeah, hey, I guess have you ever heard of uh, furry elephants? Uh, No, sir, I haven't. I'm actually putting my buckskins in the canoe right now. What what do you need? Once you find." The uh, Indian lady that's going to translate it for you. Uh, Native American, yeah. sir. Native American. Uh, if you see any elephants with hair. Okay. <laughs> Sounds kind of crazy, but I will. Yeah. No, they're there. They're, the truth is out <laughs> no, there. No, they're there. Did you just quote the X-Files? <laughs> did I quote the X-Files? Uh, no. Or did Thomas or did Jefferson Thomas. I'm not saying he lay didn't. the groundwork for the X-Files? Oh, that's great. I hope somewhere out there there's a Clark and Lewis faction of the population that's just like, no, 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 no. It was Clark and Lewis. <laughs> like the the Clark family, the the descendants of William. Well, and there's Clark also himself. other pieces of facts that I'm sure that we get kind of wrong here and there. Or we try to remember. <laughs> I saw some meme recently that said like the closest thing I can ever feel to a ghost is when a podcast is saying a piece of trivia that I know <laughs> the answer to, and I'm screaming it in my car like that's gonna happen. Like, I read that, and I sent that to you guys in the group text, and I was like, this is our listeners. This is us right now. Because we're going to screw so much up. Oh, my gosh. Uh, If you are listening to the Presequential Podcast, and you've made it this far into episode three. Shout out to you. Of Thomas Jefferson, the the scribe. We only have 42 more. Oh, man. So, anyway, Lewis Clark. Yeah. So Lewis and Clark Evans, three years. It wasn't his only expedition that he sent out. I read that I think that he sent maybe two or three others out to explore the the various... And it wasn't the Lewis's first foray into expeditioning. That's right. Yeah. I think Meriwether's older brother went up and tried to explore around Detroit. Was that what it was? Yeah, he just couldn't get the funding. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Clark, maybe? Yeah, I don't... It's... Someone's in their car yelling it right now. And that's fine. Thank you for your input. Thank you, sir and madam. We're going to move on. 1804, he's reelected to his second term. Congrats, Tom. Way to go. Uh, he has since replaced Aaron Burr with George Clinton of New York, as Russ shared, as his vice presidential candidate, and won in a landslide against Federalist Charles Pickney of South Carolina. 162 votes to 14. All dealing with chronic diarrhea. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Was this the diarrheal phase of Jefferson's life? Yeah. I mean, he had a few different maladies, but mm. he he dealt with that a lot. Okay. It was a serious illness of the day. Yeah. Get him some Pepto. Uh, in 1807, Jefferson signed the Act Prohibiting... Uh, pro- prohibiting? Sorry. Prohibiting? Go ahead. This. Go ahead. 
Dr. Robley Dunlingson, who was basically the White House doctor at the time, (laughs) characterized, it was a disease characterized by frequent liquid Mm. evacuations (sighs) and generally owing to inflammation or irritation of mucous membrane of the intestines. Oh, gosh. It could be acute or chronic, sometimes fatal. Dehydration. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. When you said liquid. The evacuation. That's a (laughs) way of putting it. (laughs) It's just... It's not inappropriate, but it sounds inappropriate. It is the evacuation. Thomas, where are you going? I'm going to go look at my sloth bones. I need to evacuate my bowels while looking at my sloth bones. (laughs) Quick, more leeches. Yeah. In 1807, he signs the Act Prohibiting the Importation of Slaves, which dealt with the issue of slavery internationally, but interestingly enough, did nothing domestically about it. But it was pretty interesting. So their concept, and this and this kind of goes through the next few presidents, is their concept was, okay, well, here's how we get rid of it. We get rid of it by attrition, right? So we don't mm. bring any more in. Yep. It'll eventually solve itself. Right. Which is not considering reproduction. Yeah. Like that was where sure. they, they, didn't, they didn't think that all the way through. And then you'll see in the next episode how they took that a step further. And yes. they thought about what they could do. Yeah, from Sierra Leone. I mean, thinking about, anyway, we won't get too much. Yeah, we won't. Yeah, Monrovia. uh, We won't get too far into the weeds on that now. But for all their faults, they at least, I guess you could at least say they tried. Like, that doesn't make it okay. No. But they were at least trying to come up with concepts. They just always conveniently left a couple of steps out that were eradicated. Yes, yes. So. Do you want to talk about the Embargo Act? No. In 1807? I mean, I mean, it. the Embargo Act was in 1807. It happened. Next. Yeah, let's just keep moving on. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this is this is an amazing step. I mean, it did piss off a lot of people. I guess we should say that. Yeah. Like, it, it was another seed yeah. that kept the snowball rolling. To he, he was ready to go to war, by the way. Oh, well, of course he was. I mean, he was like Congress, yeah. either war or an embargo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never fought in one, but let's do it. <laughs> Anyway, it, it, the embargo didn't help us. It didn't really help anyone out. Uh, it's not his most shining moment in in his legacy. Yeah, although he had like one shining moment, and it was Luther Vandross. <laughs> one shining moment, and it was just shots of woolen units. It's like all my problems with Thomas Jefferson, like man, one shining moment, slow motion. Yeah, and it's just a woolly mammoth running across an open field, just lumbering. Saying that that wasn't his shining moment, like of all of the things, he's writing. He's writing it at Monticello. It's a list of dark moments (laughs) by putting it into the not his shining moment. Like, come on. Oh, that's so great. Well, he chose not to seek a third term in 1807, and he left office in 1809, retiring to Monticello, dreaming of riding a woolly mammoth. Oddly enough. Go ahead. Seemingly was a pretty good father and grandfather. Like, he was a pretty doting grandfather. Yeah. And then in retirement, became friends with John Adams again. He did. And we skipped a lot of that. So we talked a little bit about in the last episode about how he and John, you know, effed off into the countryside in England and lectured everybody about how they should know more about their history. Yes. They ended up having a falling out. They did. Adams was president. Jeffries was, we, we touched Around the 1790s, yeah. things got pretty bad. And then afterwards, basically John is up in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, like yep. just bored off his gourd. Yeah. And he's like, I need letters. Yes. I need a pen pal. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> he starts writing Jefferson. Well, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to slightly correct. Okay. Yes, he was bored, but in 1809 fellow signer of the declaration, Benjamin Rush mm-hmm. actually reached out to Adams and he said, you know what? You should hit up Tommy J. Yeah. Like he's also bored. He's also alive. He's still alive. Hit him up for New Year's. So so John sends him a New Year's greeting, which Jefferson accepts, which he, he actually may have regretted because for every like one letter he sent to Adams, he got like three from, three from Adams. It reads from both biographies. It yes. reads as so annoying to Jefferson. Oh my gosh. Like the McCullough biography on Adams is like, he wrote him a lot. And yeah, most of the time Jefferson was like, Jesus. Good night. Or theists. The- the- <laughs> Supreme benevolent being. Yeah. And then in this biography, it talks about like he wouldn't stop. No, but it did seem like they repaired the relationship for a little. Over fourteen years, they wrote each other a hundred and fifty-eight letters total. Yeah, when was the last time you wrote? Those were from Jefferson. (laughs) Atop his woolly mammoth. Um, Oh my gosh! When's the last time I wrote a letter? Yeah, when was the last time you actually wrote a letter? Man. Probably basic training okay. is the only option. Okay. If you're yeah. ju- if you're just tuning in at this point, wow. Blaine is in the army. God, we don't. How long ago was basic training? 2008. Okay, so right now, 12 years ago. You just find that, like, here's the thing that'll make you uncomfortable. Let's talk about that again. Thank you for your service. <laughs> as early as 1800. It's not my defining. No, it's your one shining moment. This is my one shining right. moment. Yes. As early as 1800, Thomas Jefferson was thinking about, writing about, the University of Virginia, founding a university that was separate from the church, separate Mm -hmm. from like a seminary. Uh, He officially did so 19 years later in 1819 in Charlottesville at the age of 76, which is old if you're Thomas Jefferson back in the 18th century. Still riding horses. 19th century. Oh, just out there, just galloping. He was taking his horse to Old Town Roads. Grandfather, the, please step down from your horse. You're going to break a hip. You're going to fracture your pelvis again, Grandfather. And he did have some pretty bad horse falls. Yeah. Also, that's a good point. Let's talk about his horse names. Okay. They were more ridiculous than his The names that names. the horses had for him or that he had for the horses? The names he gave his horses. Okay. Alley Crocker. That was mm-hmm. his first known horse. Gustavius Cucullin. C-U-C-U-L-L-I-N. Okay. The General. Alfred, like that was clearly his butler horse. <laughs> Caracatus, hmm. Ethelinda, Silvertail, Ora Moore, Peggy Waffington. That was. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Peggy Waffington. <laughs> I'd be like, that was one of those horses that's like really hairy. Look at Peggy <laughs> Waffington Peggy, over there. Peggy Waffington. That sounds like a mad lib. Zangia, Zanga, Polly Peachum, Romulus, and Remus. Raleigh, Tarquin, Castor, Diomede, Primo, Wellington, Tecumseh, Peacemaker, and his last horse, the Eagle. The Eagle, wow. Only two of them got an article, the General and the Eagle. Clearly, he was rich. He had like 15 horses. Good night. But he was also one of those presidents that was land rich, cash poor. Yes. I mean... Not to get too far ahead of you. Well, we're... At the end. Not to put the cart before the horse. <laughs> yes. Diomedes. Perfect. Uh, um, Peggy, what was her name? Peggy what? Waffington. <laughs> That's not a real horse name. It can't why, be. Why would, why would John Meach have put Peggy Waffington? <laughs> Maybe he did. Maybe he was like, I bet you I could throw a Peggy Waffington. No one's going to No one's going to do a this. podcast about this. 
Peggy Waffington. Yeah, we should write him and be like, "Was Peggy Waffington real?" Yeah, I had a question. We just put our names on the line behind Peggy Waffington. <laughs> our six listeners. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Speaking of land rich, cash poor, I guess we're gonna flash forward a little bit. He dies a hundred thousand dollars in debt, whereas John Adams, his predecessor, died a hundred thousand in the black because um, of his son. True. I mean, let, let's okay. You know, we we probably do need to owe John Adams a little bit more time here when he did reconcile with Adams. This was a big deal. I mean, I think they saw, this was what was really interesting to me. They saw posterity down the line. They said, you know what? It's probably where I think John Adams might've said, I'm paraphrasing. It's, it's good for us to come to grips with what we mean to history before we die. And their deaths are very oh, important. This is incredible, man. Very I, symbolic. I, I got chill. Uh, every time I think about this deeply, I, I get yeah mystified. Yeah. I, I, I am so we involved. might as well just do it now. So Go. 50th year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. They, Maybe you've heard of it. Yeah. And we talked about it in the last episode. They both pass away within hours of each other. One which, is in Massachusetts. The other is in Virginia. Yeah. I believe Jefferson went first. Correct. Although John Adams' final words, purportedly, were Thomas Jefferson survives. He did not know that he had actually outlived Thomas. But it did show that for everything they had for a long time against each other, they were able to to really bring it back all in. Yeah. And, and I think that, obviously, there is a skeptic in me that wonders, did that really happen? Like, I would love to believe it happened. Okay. Why would it not have? I don't know. It all aligns so perfectly. Yeah. And record-keeping wasn't great i don't know i don't want to throw that out i i mean i I guess i already did i already threw it out i already did but it does there is a skeptic in me that that wonders maybe pieces of it have been changed over time to make it a better story Hmm. okay i'll allow that Uh, yeah Yeah. that doesn't change my mind about the fact that i think it's really cool that Two of the founding fathers died on the 50th anniversary. Literally the same day. Monroe died on the anniversary. How how, about? Yeah, it was later. later. I think also on the the 4th of July. It was on the 4th of July, but like he lived for a while. Yes. So let's talk legacy. One of the things I wanted to bring up, I'll get it out there if you haven't figured it out. Like I'm not a huge fan of Jefferson as a human being. I'm not either. That doesn't take away from the importance of what he did from writing the Declaration of Independence from... A lot of the legislature that he did, I mean, he expanded the country by double. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Napoleon. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, he had, a, he had a lot of human faults, which who doesn't? Yeah. His may be magnified. Well, his are magnified because he owned human beings and that's absolutely wrong. And one of the human beings he owned, he used his position of power to, whether it's forced or not, they had children together. Like, yeah. that's that's not good. Obviously, like, I think the woolly man thing is really funny. I think it's endearing <laughs> and things like that. He also correctly foresaw the rise of coffee. You got to unpack this for me. Did uh, I miss this in the book? He actually wrote in one of his journals that the coffee bean is to become the favorite beverage of the civilized world. Wow. Wow. I never knew that about Thomas Jefferson. That's some foresight, man. Hmm. He literally foresaw a Starbucks on every corner. See, but the skeptic in me goes, I think coffee was around in Europe in like the 1500s. He's saying now it being around and it being the favorite beverage of the world are two different things. Okay. I I wonder if he just saw its addictive effects. (laughs) He was like, clearly people are going to love this stuff. (laughs) This stuff makes you feel amazing. Because obviously we, we didn't grow up here. 
at Correct. the time. It was, I mean, we were a tobacco country, we were a corn country, we were a wheat country. Yeah. And he had the benefit of travel and he had been through Europe and things like that. And he, sure. he probably did see how popular it was in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a legacy piece, right? Like we yeah. want to talk about life. Like mean, we've done that legacy. We want to talk about little known facts. We've covered the little known facts. Yeah. <laughs> we've covered the life. That yeah. predicting coffee is a pretty lofty legacy. Next what? time you're at Starbucks or your local yeah. coffee joint. You got a well, little bit preferably of preferably t- your local coffee joint. Yes. Yeah. Support small business. You got Thomas Jefferson a little bit to thank. Yeah. And yeah. maybe tell your barista who won't care at all. <laughs> <laughs> maybe when they ask for your name, you say Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. As a little shot. I do that. That's a little trick I do. And Places where they ask for my name, yeah, because especially Blaine, Blaine I, is an interesting name. Well, they they either I'm either get a Wayne. Russ has been with me before when I've said my name and it's come out on the receipt like something completely different, and then <laughs> you throw a mask in on that. Oh yeah, and so Game there over. are times where I'm just like, it's Steve. <laughs> like I know you know that name. <laughs> We're good. You can't mess that one up. So what's your biggest? So, so my takeaway from from Jefferson Legacy is. I don't really like him as a human. I can appreciate the contributions he gave yes. to our country. I love the woolly mammoth thing. Yeah. What's your legacy? I'm, I'm struggling to put my finger on why I don't like Thomas Jefferson maybe as much as I quote unquote ought to. I don't know why I dock him a little bit throughout history. I think a lot of it is the slavery piece. Although, I mean, how many of the founding fathers were slaveholders? 13 versus 16. So, so I don't know what Quin- it is. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and Abraham Lincoln were the only three non-slave owners of the first 16 presidents. Say that again. Who would John, John Adams, and John Quincy? John Quincy, Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Really? The only three of the first 16. Wow. I feel like Thomas Jefferson might, no, he definitely was an elitist, which I think in right, my yeah. mind, I tend to shy away from. Yeah. But I mean, you could make that argument about any of those first presidents besides Jackson. Yeah. He was pretty populist. He was salt of the earth. I don't know. I, I do. Th- there is something to be said for how much, like, and, and I I can't put my finger on why, but I'm a big proponent of education. Yeah. There's something to be said for him starting the University of Virginia. Yeah. It was something that was very near and dear to his heart. It was something that he really looked after yeah. his entire life after his presidency. Yeah. It was an, an incredibly important thing, and it's an institution that still survives to this day. Both William and Mary and uh, Virginia. Um, Yeah, I think part of what I might dock Thomas for in my mind is, as I read this book, how he viewed the French Revolution and how he sort of just turned a blind eye to it, I think ruffled my feathers a little bit, so to speak. Especially because we have the benefit of hindsight. Correct. So he was in the moment. He was thinking, my country, and now I'm standing up on his, he was thinking, (laughs) my country did this revolution and it was great. Yeah. They helped us in the revolution and now they're doing their own. We should help them. He sure. didn't see the bigger picture of they're not doing it in the same way. They're very unorganized. They're approaching this as revolution's great. Let's do revolution. Not yeah. you're preventing us from doing something we want to do. Let us do our thing. Correct. So he didn't see the difference between the revolution. Yeah, I think that's why I would side a little bit more with Adams specifically about the French Revolution. Like Adams was very much against democracy, mob rule. Like when he saw things melt down, he and both Abigail were very much against it. And Jefferson almost seemed to celebrate it. Adams believed in the law. Hmm. Jefferson almost was anti that. Yeah. Jefferson almost saw the law. It's like, yeah, let's question it. Let's fight it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, even if you go back to Adams' 
defending the officers from the Boston uh, Massacre. Boston Massacre. Yeah. He said, truth is a tricky thing. You know what I mean? So, Knowing that at the cost of what it was going to cost him yeah. to, to go into this trial, defending these British officers. Whereas, and, and that was one of the notes I had that we kind of glossed over. Jefferson did tend to flip-flop a little bit yeah. throughout his political career of what would benefit him the best. Yeah. Looking back at our founding fathers, from the way I was raised and the way that I think most people sure. in America were brought up to believe that they were these men of unbroachable, unbroachable ethics yeah. that believed in freedom. And now that I'm learning a little bit more about them, they weren't all that. Yeah. And None of them were perfect, nor are we. And I think that's fair. I think it's yeah. fair to say that they weren't. And I think it's fair to okay to look at them at that lens and say, here's the great things they did. Yeah. Here's where the seven paragraphs of your seventh grade history book. <laughs> sure. And I think that that's one of the great things of what we're doing in this yeah. journey is figuring yeah. that stuff out. And yeah, what what does the presidency even mean? You know, what how how are our lives different today based on what Thomas Jefferson or Millard Fillmore? We're gonna see it evolve, and I think we've talked about this before. We we've, we've read ahead. For obvious reasons, yes, we, we need to be ahead to be able to take a break for family reasons from recording and stuff. Boy, are we doing a lot of reading. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as we'll see, we have a, three more presidents left yeah. before things start to change. Yes. The presidency becomes a different thing over time. Sure. So we're going to see that evolution, and I'm really excited about how this journey is going. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we wanted to cover the life legacy and little known facts. And I think we did a pretty good job of that here. And I think that this is the first one that we both kind of struggled with. Yeah. Because I'd agree with that. we don't want to take some sort of partisan weird view of what, it, you know, we wanted to look at this from a, I'm learning about this person lens. And yeah. this is the first person that I think it's been beaten into our heads since we were kids. He's yes. a founding father. He's great. Yeah. And we looked at it and we were like, yeah, I don't know if he was. Mm, yeah. Two dollar so, bill, the nickel, the we the people. You know, it, it makes us uncomfortable yeah. that we feel bad about him. Uh -huh. I think that's what it is. Yeah. It's it's hard for me to go all men are created equal and also you owned 187 slaves. Yeah. It, it's just hard. Yeah. That's very hard for me in 2020 to look at him in yeah. 17 parlance of our times. Yes, exactly. If you were having a, a glass of red wine with Thomas Jefferson tonight, Blaine, what would you want to talk to him about? I think I would love to ask him more about Willie Mays because <laughs> I think that the easy I think the easy answer to that question is what really happened with Sally Hemings. Mm. Right. Like that's what sure. the majority of people And he probably would, would have gone, Why are we talking about Sally? Yeah. I'd be like, tell me why you were fascinated. Like, yeah. cause I want to know why you were fascinated about that. I want to know why yeah. you thought they existed here. Like, let's talk about, it. I love the weird side of people. Yes. And that was the weird side of Thomas Jefferson. Mm. I would love to like dig deep into that. Yeah. Like that's, that's what I'd want to have a beer or glass of red wine. Yeah. I'm over. What about you? I think for me, it would have been taking it back to the upstairs bedroom where he's authoring the declaration. And in just, a bricklayer's house. In a bricklayer's house. I don't remember his Jacob name. Jacob Graft. Jacob Graft. I think just um, instead of necessarily asking him a question, I would have just liked to observe that moment. Mm. I think I would have liked to have seen him sit there and sit in the gravity of what he was doing. The act of putting... A pen, I mean, feather, sure. you know, quill to parchment, just that act of creating something that I think he must have known was going to live into posterity. You know, a lot of these guys had this vision of the unborn millions that what they were doing was affecting 
I would have liked to have sat in that room with Thomas and and maybe just picked his brain during a break when he got up to say, I need to I need to stretch a little bit before I write this next part. I've heard of some people I'm about to get real weird. Deep. Go ahead. Think of the afterlife. I actually heard somebody use this as an analogy from the pulpit once that they hope that in the afterlife that there's almost like a film room. Hmm. Where they can say, I would love to see this part. Hmm. And he was saying it from something from David, I believe. Yeah. You're looking at it from that standpoint. I would love to be able to go back and pull that piece of film and watch it. Yeah. Rather than sit down and have a conversation. Hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And we haven't done this before, but I'd really be interested to see what Russ would like to ask him. Russ, what would you, if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a glass of wine or pull something from his uh, his DVR and watch it, what would it be? Sure. Uh, I'm absolutely on board with the woolly mammoths. <laughs> and <clears throat> the thought that I constantly have now is him, as you said, but riding Snuffleupagus. Snuffleupagus, the Sesame Street sure. woolly mammoth. Yeah. And I feel like you probably had some influence there. Big Bird's best friend. Yeah. yeah. I never put those two and two together. That yeah. one and one. What, Thomas Jefferson and Snuffleupagus? I think he invented Muppets. I think we could safe to say. You heard <laughs> it here first. <laughs> he he took a large sleep. <laughs> All right. So oh, my gosh. That, James Madison. Coming up next. Coming up next. Uh, the realist. I'm excited about that one. I'm excited about all of them. Yeah. As I'm reading, it's not so much exciting, but as I'm here with you two See, unpacking all this, I have, I have so much fun. Experience. I really? love reading about it, and I just dread you guys coming. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> hey, and thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would do us the solid of leaving us a review of subscribing of sharing this with a friend or a loved one a fellow history buff that would mean the world to us because it actually really does help we're coming up next with james madison potus number four the realist you are listening to the presequential podcast and we thank you so much for joining us today love you everybody